There's fact, and then there's fiction or myth. And when you're talking about an intricate human skill like lace making, that's been passed down the generations by word of mouth, sometimes the legends tell you as much, if not more, than the facts. So it's a really beautiful origin myth of lace making. And essentially, it goes that long ago, a young sailor went fishing at sea and was suddenly surrounded by a group of enchanting mermaids. They tried to seduce him with their songs, but he would not be swayed as his heart belonged to his beautiful fiancée back on the island. Impressed by his devotion, the Queen of the Mermaids gifted him a veil of ethereal seaweed, also described sometimes as seafoam or coral, um, depending on the version, which he took home to his bride. And the girl was a needleworker, and struck by the elaborate structure of the veil, she imitated it in small stitches with her needle and thread and produced a delicate textile which quickly became the taste of all Europe. That's a story from Venice, and telling it is Elena Carnegie Lou, who's a lace historian and maker. And if I'm granted a second life, I'd quite like her job. She's the collection specialist at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Antonio Ratti Textile Research Center in New York. And for the record, here are the facts about lace. Bobbin and needle lace kind of evolved in tandem out of two different techniques. Needle lace out of cutwork embroidery, which was worked on plain weave um, linen fabric. Um, and then the patterns were cut out and buttonhole stitches were worked into them to create elaborate patterns. Eventually the base fabric was discarded and they worked directly onto the pattern base itself on parchment paper initially. So this was called in Italy at first punto in aria or stitches in air because you're doing embroidery into the air instead of on the base. And that's how you create needle lace. Whereas bobbin lace developed out of braiding techniques similar to passementary, it's the sort of elaborate metal braids you see on military uniforms and things like that, or in upholstery still made today. And as it became increasingly elaborate, bobbins were attached to the individual threads to keep them organized. And essentially this is like, someone described it to me as cursive braiding, and I think that's quite apt. It is in fact a bit of circuitry. <laughs> Welcome to Haptic and Hue, and season four of Tales of Textiles, called Threads of Survival. My name is Joe Andrews, and I'm a hand weaver, interested in what cloth in all its forms, tells us about ourselves as human beings. Textiles have an incredible power to talk to us if we can hear them. They comfort and console us, create memories and define who we are. They can tell others what we think and more than anything, they tell us what sort of society we live in. This episode is about lace, those elusive stitches in air, as the Italians call them. But not just the extraordinary past of lace, in which it has been a generator of poverty and harsh conditions for some, usually the female makers, and great riches for others, where it has been stolen and smuggled, desired and displayed by both genders as a sign of taste, fashion and status. It is also the story of how lace in the 21st century has risen from the ashes like a glorious phoenix 
and from being one of the most despised and discarded of crafts, is now producing some of the most interesting and alluring modern art. Lace today is something your great-aunt Mildred would struggle to recognise. It is being deployed in all its complexity and beauty by skilled makers to say something important about difficult issues like climate change, gender and sexuality. It has come a very long way from its apparent beginnings in early Renaissance Europe. People do reckon that it probably goes back to the 1400s, but um, you see edgings in uh, portraits, uh, Tudor portraits. So they start off really quite dainty and, and fine, and then they blossom into the Elizabethan rough. There are some wonderful pattern books which were published in the mid-1500s, probably for amateurs rather than uh, professionals. But the rough, you know, blossomed in all its gorgeous gorgeousness, and, and that's where lace really took off. Jane Atkinson is a fourth-generation lace maker and one of the leading lights in the modern lace movement. The rough developed into the falling collar, the cavalier falling collar. And I mean, the, the cartwheel-type rough kept going on the continent, I think, longer than it did um, in England. But the Stuarts started wearing these falling collars and whereas the early laces were spidery and geometric, the falling collars were much softer, they became more floral, and you could do all sorts of things with, with, with those designs. Jane is talking about the time of the Civil War in England, the war between the Puritans and the Cavaliers in the 1600s. And it was the Cavaliers who supported the king who loved lace. They had lace everywhere. You'd have it on your boot tops or uh, rosettes on your shoes, collars and cuffs, fans. Everywhere you could have a trimming, you could use lace. The gentlemen in the Restoration period would have these um, boots with lace over the, over the top. They just loved it. Uh, and, and it's so lovely to think of men enjoying wearing lace. By this stage, at the beginning of the 1700s, most of Europe seems to have acquired a serious lace habit, one that took quite some funds to supply. The thing is, it's very pretty, isn't it? And it's very detailed. And once you get into lace, you develop an eye for the, the differences between the different laces. Fashion progressed from one type of lace to another, so you had to keep up with it, and you had to have the right kind of lace and worn in the right way. You know, when the, the periwig came in, that covered the shoulders, so there was no point in having a falling collar because that would have all have disappeared. So gentlemen had these wide cravats with a big area of lace over the upper chest. The most fashionable lace for that um, kind of thing was heavy Venetian needlepoint, grow point. And that was completely different lace again from the early Stuart laces. So there was no point in having your Van Dyked 
falling band and made into a cravat because it would have been completely the wrong thing. And people were prepared to pay huge sums of money for lace and the higher their status, the bigger the bills. Jane has been looking at the lace bills of the British King and Queen, William and Mary, at around the time of Mary's death. The best place, really, for extravagant lace bills is the Royal Wardrobe account. William and Mary were a, a very tight unit. It's one of those marriages that really developed from inauspicious beginnings. Her last lace bill was the equivalent of about a quarter of a million uh, in today's terms. And uh, William went into mourning afterwards and his next lace bill after that was nearly um, the modern, modern equivalent of £300,000. A cravat could, could cost 50 quid when you, you know, multiply that by at least 10 times. They just wanted it, and so they got it. Just like other fine and complex fabrics, lace had, by this stage, become a marker of status. The more lace you had, the greater your standing. In the early days of lace, many European courts passed laws forbidding people below a certain rank to wear it. When you could, everyone would wear lace. Sumptuary laws have been going since medieval times and there was a point at which uh, I think nobody below the rank of knight was allowed to wear uh, sumptuous trimmings like lace. I mean, not just here, but in France. And I think you can replicate this in most, most countries. But everybody wore what they could afford. I mean, it's really sad to think that you might make lace but not be allowed to wear it. It was very, very popular right through the 1700s uh, until fashions changed at the latter part of the century and um, became simpler and muslin became the thing. But in the 1700s, lace had become so commonplace that the police were forced to issue advice to women travelling in horse-drawn carriages in London. There was an account that I came across about how thieves would slit open the back of um, a carriage and steal the lady's headdress, uh, wig and all, because they had these, these marvellous um, lace headdresses with lappets and feathers. And so the police advised the ladies which should sit with their back to the horses. <laughs> and because it was so desirable and expensive, taxing lace and other luxury goods was often the answer to the prayers of a cash-strapped government. But taxing goods has an inevitable consequence. For most of the 18th century, England, Britain was at war with somebody or other. Uh, so we were either fighting the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Americans. And of course, these were wars were worldwide. And we were trying to defend an empire. And the cost was horrendous. So a duty was put on goods, especially luxury goods, as a way of raising money. People were poor and people needed to make money and they could make a lot of money out of smuggling. Fortunes were made out of smuggling along this part of the coast. That's Mike Andrews, no relation, and we're sitting in his small boat deep in the reeds on a sunny morning in Christchurch Harbour in Dorset, 
in the south of England. Mike is a local historian and a specialist in the extensive history of smuggling along this coast. He explains why this harbour was a smuggler's paradise. It's got an awful lot of um, features which were so beneficial for smuggling. Firstly, it's a sheltered harbour. Uh, secondly, it's got a rather difficult entrance and you've got to know your way in. A lot of sandbars on the outside of it. Um, it's got two rivers which flow into it, which means you've got river routes inland. It's close to some really good hiding places for goods. So that's uh, the New Forest and what was Bourne Heath, which is where Bournemouth is today. That was all open heathland. Um, it has gently shelving beaches on the outside, no steep cliffs, no nasty rocks, and probably the most important reason is it has two tides. So if a ship's captain has missed the first tide, there's a second tide that comes in and he can get in on that. One of the few places in the, in the world, I think, that has a, a, a two tides. Mike says the latter part of the 1700s was a golden age for smuggling. And this particular part of the Dorset coast was the epicentre of this activity, with thousands and thousands of barrels of brandy and other illicit luxury goods like French lace coming ashore here. We have a, a very good story on lace. That was actually smuggled by individuals. They had a very clever modus operandi. A particular lady by the name of Lovey Warne, who actually came from Burley, and her brothers were into smuggling. But she had a wonderful method. Um, she would wait for, obviously this has been prearranged, but she'd wait for the ship to come in to Christchurch Harbour, up to the quay at Christchurch. Um, she'd go on board on the pretext of seeing the captain, go into the captain's cabin where the lace was waiting. She'd take her clothes off, wrap herself in lace and silks and any other valuable, and then put her clothes back on and then walk off the ship and wave bye-bye to the captain. She was very nearly caught at a pub called the Eight Bells, which was a well-known smuggling pub in Christchurch. It's now a gift shop, but it's still there. And she went in one day after one of these operations and sat down with a, a cooling drink. And one of the customs officers came in, a new man who hadn't been in the area long, and obviously took a shine to Lovey, sat down beside her, and at the point he ran his hand up her leg, he knew, she knew she had to get out. <laughs> she could be discovered. So she quickly slapped him and left. And I don't think she visited the pub again after. She got very close to being caught. And make no mistake, this may have been a game of cat and mouse, but it was also big business. Fortunes were being made, but if people got caught, there were consequences to take. Obviously smuggling went on for some time, so um, legislation was coming and going all the time. You could be fined. There was an incidence of a smuggler in Lulworth who had a, a quarter share in a, something like a nine-chilling lobster boat, a family of eight, and he was caught smuggling. Obviously poor, of a, poor as a church mouse. Brought in front of the magistrates, and the magistrates found it, fined him £20. The smuggler walked up to the bench, put his hand in his back pocket, took out £20, slapped it on the desk and walked out. The money was incredible. Uh, one smuggler admitted to a turnover, he, he sort of turned King's evidence and admitted to a turnover of £40,000 a year. The money made was in incredible. Uh, other punishments, of course, 
when you got into a, a, any sort of conflict with the revenue and there were injuries, then obviously the punishments were more severe and would it could be death or transportation. But what of the lace makers themselves, the people who created these deeply desirable items just with the skill of their fingers? How did they fare? And did any of these riches come to them? Here's Jane. You could make a, a decent living if you were a good lace maker. You could live an independent life, which was pretty unusual for a countrywoman. I'd say quite a lot of lace was made in the countryside, although I think a lot was made in, in, in towns, especially um, in Devon. It was a, the equivalent of an agricultural worker's wage, but I mean, I think women could have been proud of keeping themselves with their skill, but the conditions were not good. You would have to, you know, the days were long. If you were working in, in a group, the rooms were crowded. It was very easy to transmit tuberculosis between them. You were under the control of the lace manufacturer who would give out the patterns and the thread. So you weren't able to make lace on your own account, sell it for yourself. Um, unless you could somehow get hold of the thread. Thread came in through from abroad and was heavily taxed. And I think you pay about 25% on uh, lace thread, which would be coming in from Flanders. So money was tight and you could quite often be paid on the truck system where you had to take some of your wages in um, goods from a shop under the control of the um, manufacturer. But no matter where you were, this was a communal activity. And many kinds of lace makers created songs or tells to chant as they worked. Here's Elena Kanagilou. So lace making is very difficult to learn in isolation. It's, so it's often necessary to join the community in order to learn to make it well. For me, I feel as a lace maker myself that all of the knowledge that I have directly comes from the vast community of lace makers that today and that came before me. Um, so I always think about you know, embodying them when I'm working at my pillow. So it, it, to me, it makes sense that in this spirit of community that they would develop these stories um, together. In, in lace. There hasn't been enough work done to know if songs or tells from lace-making regions in France, Spain and Italy have simply been lost on the winds of history, or if they never existed. But most of those that have been documented come from Flanders or Britain and Ireland. So many of these tells come from the well-known book on lace history, The Romance of the Lace Pillow by Thomas Wright, and they've also been published more recently by Dr. David Hopkins at Oxford. But sadly, many lace tells with enticing titles like Blackberry Nan, The Squire's Ghost, and Little Goblin's Hole have been lost to time. But also, many have survived. So one of the most well-known English lace tells goes as follows. Needle pin, needle pin, stitch upon stitch, work the old lady out of the ditch. If she is not out as soon as I, a rap on the knuckle shall come by and by. A horse to carry my lady out must not look till 20 are out. So this is counted with the placement of pins. And after you would recite this together, um, the lace makers would count out 20 pins while they worked. 
and if any lacemaker looked up from her pillow before she finished, the others would cry out, hang her up for half an hour, cut her down just like a flower. To which the lacemaker in question would reply indignantly, perhaps, I won't be hung up for a half an hour. I won't be cut down like a, a flower. And then they would repeat. These aren't pretty rhymes for comfortable lives. They're reflections of tough and often grueling lives that many lace makers led. The patron saint of lace in Le Puy-en-Velay in France, Saint-Régis, is a real story of the struggles of lace makers in their earliest days. So Jean-François Régis was a Jesuit priest who lived in France from 1597 to 1640. And at the time, northern Italian lace was at the height of fashion, so particularly from Milan and Venice. And the French monarchy under Louis XIV tried very hard to sort of squash the desire for imported lace by passing sumptuary legislation against it. But this unfortunately caused the lace makers of Le Puy to become destitute. So Saint-Régis saw that many of them had been forced onto the streets or had turned to sex work to survive and went to the French parliament in Toulouse to fight for the laws to be overturned. And amazingly, he succeeded. And today he has been canonized by the church and is still celebrated by lacemakers in Le Puy for his support of the industry. And in England, one of the curiosities of bobbin lacemaking was that lacemakers marked great events with commemorative bobbins. They even marked sensational crimes that resulted in the death penalty with special so-called hanging bobbins. There are only about seven known examples, and the two sort of best known are the hanging bobbin commemorating Sarah Daisley's hanging in 1843 in Lavenden and Bucks. Um, and Daisley was executed for poisoning her husband with arsenic in Wrestlingsworth beds. And her conviction was sensationalized given that she was only 22, and it was rumored that she had also killed a previous husband in the same way and intended to do it five more times, it is said. So this was made into rare um, extant bobbins, although none are known currently, I think. I think perhaps the most well-known and heartbreaking also story is that of Joseph Castle, who was hanged in 1860 um, in Ravenstone Bucks. Forgive my American pronunciation. Castle was an abusive man, sadly, married to a lace maker named Jane. And when she left him, he stalked her and eventually murdered her. So Castle's case caused a sensation by the way that it was solved. It was a bloodhound from the Luton police station that sniffed out enough evidence to convict him for murdering his wife. And on the night of his hanging, his wife's friends held a huge celebration where each guest was given an engraved bobbin as a memento. So these are readily available. Well, I shouldn't say readily available, but these do circulate and there are many extant versions of this in special collections. It's a heartbreaking but poignant story because it's the celebration of justice um, against a beloved friend and lace maker. Jane Atkinson's great-grandmother, her grandmother and her aunt were all lace makers in gentler times. They learned to make a specific lace in the 20th century that comes from just outside Salisbury called Downton Lace. Jane herself has lived on the edge of Christchurch Harbour in Dorset, which is not that far away, from close to 40 years. And most days she walks around part of the harbour called Stampit Marsh. And over that 40 years I began to be aware that 
I could see it changing and I fancied there are so many beautiful patterns that rise to the surface of the water or even just the, the, the ripples on the water um, and the plants along the path and I, I, um, I ended up making an exhibition from all of these things drawing the inference that much is changing on the marsh whereas I started off making uh, designs from thick patterns in the winter ice this gradually got thinner and thinner until we're hardly getting ice at all as the winter has warmed and the waters are rising higher over the path and so really climate change has become my the thing that that uh, I find really interesting to bring to people's attention with the work that I do. This is as far away from the kind of lace making that our grandmothers and great grandmothers would have recognised as you can get. Jane's lace making is not destined for a gentleman's ruff, but instead to make a much deeper point. Her lace marries beautifully the sense of fragility and the textures of the environment around her. The tides of the creek advancing and receding and the disappearing ice. Her work almost allows you to hear oyster catchers on the wing above the harbour, arriving earlier and earlier every year because of climate change. Or to see the arching limbs of ghost trees, damaged in the more frequent storms that have come as the weather changes. This is serious work in service of a cause, and it's important. Jane is one of a number of modern lacemakers making extraordinary and fresh work that deserves to be seen and appreciated far beyond the small community of lacemakers. There is something about the combination of the intricacy of lace, the skills in manipulating it, and the multitude of textures and shapes that it can produce that enables lace makers to give a new form and meaning to art. Pierre Fouché is one of the leading lace making artists of our times. Many contemporary lace makers like myself, have discovered that lace is an incredibly versatile medium with which you can do anything. It, it is the perfect medium for expression because uh, firstly, it has a colorful history. You can represent anything with it in any style and uh, with any mood or emotion. So, so it, it needn't be limited to, to its traditional forms. Now, the, the traditional forms are really exquisite and they are technically ingenious and, and you cannot but be awed and silenced when you look at a piece of historical lace at the finest, the delicacy, the, the, the complexity. Lace, even in its traditional form, is exquisite. It is probably the highest form of textile manipulation that, that 
one can get if you imagine that that it started with just the idea of interlacing loose strands of thread and uh, it evolved over time to become this incredibly complex system of patterns and organic weaving uh, with which you can create irregular shapes it also represents our aspirational side as humans as a species we we aim higher we can take a basic thing and explore it to its limits and that we can solve hard problems and, and lace captures that i'm hoping that by by using lace in my work that i can also restore a little bit of faith in humanity that because we are clever enough to have figured out this incredible technique maybe we'd be clever enough to solve our big problems too pierre grew up as a gay man in south africa where he still lives and works as a queer artist, I also have an activist streak in me. And so I think lace fits that bill to a T. I'm still engaging with, with queer iconography and dealing with the representation in my work um, just because I grew up in the 80s. There was zero representation when I grew up. So, so I think that famine of role models um, just made it clear that one of my main goals is to provide as many images representing queerness as uh, as i can and using lace to create images of queerness is a leap of genius the finished works pierre has produced and the points he is making are all the stronger for being made in lace the magical fragility of lace but its strong definition and durability give these works immense power they describe and depict beautifully and do it in a technique that is far removed from traditional masculinity. It was a combination of all these aspects coming together and my being at the right place at the right time, giving the right message. Um, now that I'm a little bit more established um, and our world is also changing so rapidly, my activism is also incorporating other areas now, environmentalism, just a concern for, for where we are culturally, ecologically. Lace is a very useful medium for that too, because it represents the best of us and also uh, the long arch of history of where we've been, where we've come from, what we've become. In the sense that lace is an evolution of a textile technique, it started with a basic a basic thing and then it becomes something special. So I think that is where I'm at at the moment in, yeah, in my view of, of uh, what lace means. Pierre's road to lace was through his grandmother, who taught him needlepoint. He then progressed to crochet and on to lace making. His work is successful and he's able to command art prices. He's well aware of his privilege compared to many of the female makers who cannot do the same. I was already an established artist when I arrived at Lace, so, so I think that is maybe my unfair advantage uh, as to other lace makers uh, trying to break into the art world, which is hard enough for even trained artists to do. I had uh, already had a solo exhibition showing uh, two of my tapestry works and also my sculptural assemblages, uh, as I call the dice pieces. So you were able to make a living doing that? Tentatively at first and later on um, uh, as, a, as a professional full-time artist, yes. That was my head start into 
being able to 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 make lace uh, and sell it uh, for a living because many contemporary lace makers don't have that luxury because they don't have an inn in the art world pierre also believes that the modern revival of handmade lace freed now from its shackles of being a desirable fashion item is helping to blur the boundaries between art and craft i think our views of art and craft is changing and for the better those strict divides are not that relevant anymore i think contemporary artists are are relishing blurring boundaries and and i think contemporary crafters are also realizing that their work is important as they rightly should those lace makers of old even though they were just going through the motions tur- turning out lace uh, as fast as they could that involved incredible skill learned over years and years of of doing and making and it is that that learning that one gets from making it that gives it value and um and i think contemporary lace makers realize that and can start to exploit that in substantiating what they do as art elena in brooklyn new york also sees lace as a way to question and redraw boundaries i tend to get polar opposite responses either people are utterly dismissive and say lace you mean grandma doilies and i say yes in fact grandma doilies i celebrate them the other uh reaction that i get increasingly and much more frequently than the negative one or dismissive one is that people are just overwhelmed um they've never considered that lace ever had to be made by hand and it boggles their mind to see it so you know younger people today i think are really drawn to these sorts of things that they don't necessarily have the same baggage as their mothers or grandmothers did for example and you know there are so many younger people questioning gender norms and embracing femininity and domesticity in these different ways so thanks to the internet and social media lace makers are now able to connect all over the world and there's been such a positive outpouring over these techniques that i really see lace making on the precipice of an exciting new era In talking to the lace makers, what has struck me more than any other skill is the sheer joy they take in lace making. I think from time to time most of us get frustrated with our work. I know I do. But for the lace makers, there seems to be an extraordinary delight in what they do. Here's Jane Atkinson. The first time I I touched bobbins, I felt I saw stars. It was a, a physical a physical reaction, a bit like being kicked in the head. Uh, I get a great sense of peace and contentment when I make lace. Even if I haven't been able to do it during the day because I've been busy with other things, I look forward to sitting down with it in the evening and and, and um, I feel that it refills the bucket that I've emptied um, during the day uh, and I go to bed serene and, and calm we all know that it releases endorphins that make you feel good oh, i just think lace making ought to be on the national health you know it's just so good for you <laughs> and it keeps your brain supple um you know lace makers if they're lucky can go on into um old age my favorite lace maker german lace maker lenny matty 
died at 107, so we're all keeping our fingers crossed that we can follow in her footsteps. Thank you for listening to this episode on lace. I need to express my profound gratitude to Jane Atkinson for prodding me until I understood what a great story this is. It really has everything, from poisoners to smugglers, from great historical figures addicted to lace, to good modern art with something important to say and some incredible skills behind it. Thanks to Mike Andrews for a great trip on a perfect day across Christchurch Harbour to understand how the smuggling worked. To Elena Carnegie Lou for keeping such a fierce flame burning for lace makers in the US. And to Pierre Fouché for his artistry, activism and depth of thought on craft and art. Now that was a conversation we could have spent hours on. As ever, there are pictures, and this time, lots of links to further resources on lace, books, courses, museums, and more, as well as a full script on the Haptic and Hue website at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hue is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production which is supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee. If you'd like to contribute, you'll find the button on our website at www.hapticandhue.com. We'll be taking a rest next month, August, but join us again on the first Thursday in September for a new episode of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'll leave you this time with a poem found and read by Elena Carnegie Lou. It was written in 1651 by the Flemish poet Jacob van Eyck. Here's Elena reading it in English, translated by Gwendolyn Gruel and Travis Qualls. Of many arts of young women, one surpasses all. The threads woven by the strange power of the hand, the hanging threads which Arachne would in vain attempt to imitate and which Pallas would confess she had never known. For the maiden, seated at her work, plies her fingers rapidly and turns round the smooth pillow a thousand threads into a circuit. Often with her hand she fastens, and again unfastens, the countless pins to express the various patterns from her imagination, and in this amusement makes as much profit as the man earns from the sweat of his brow, and no maiden ever complains at even the length of the day. The issue is a fine web, permeable to the winds with many an aperture, which feeds the pride of the whole globe which encircles with its fine border, cloaks and bands, and looks brilliant round the throats and hands of kings. And what is more surprising, it is equal in weight to a bird's feather, which outweighs our purses in great cost. <laughs>